Hello, courageous and brave and wonderful women. I am really just in awe that we are in this space together, knowing how much this journey started with all of us wanting to gather together and coronavirus hitting. And our world has just changed over a thousand times, it seems like, since then. And yet here we are in this new platform um, that the Lord ordained from the beginning. The Lord knew that we would be gathered together this way and called Tara and her team to put this together for us. And I just am in awe of how God works and will continue to work and that we can be together today. So I am Dr. Kristen Valerius. I am a wife and a mother of three. Um, I have a 10-year-old boy, 13-year-old girl, 17-year-old son. I am also a child uh, adolescent family psychologist and the owner of an agency, Sunstrom Clinical Services, where we have about 18 psychologists, therapists, prescribers, folks like that that treat families and individuals for across the lifespan from, from birth through geriatrics, really. And I, like you, have just lived through a pandemic, which means that I am talking about technology, but my relationship with technology has been changing like everything else over the last three months. Um, I've been um, using tech as a lifeline in my clinical practice. In about 48 hours, we shifted the entire practice to telehealth, and um, I've done online crisis schooling with my kids, and so I feel like in the last three months I've spent more hours in front of a computer screen than I ever have done in my entire life before that. Like, it just, it's, uh, it's remarkable for all of us, and I bet most of you can uh, say the same thing on the other end. So my thoughts on all of this, on technology and our call and how to raise children who are wise consumers in a digital world and um, all of that is ever-changing. Some of what you're going to hear today is from research um, and things that we've known. Some of it's from my lived experience, uh, especially recently, because recently, honestly, we just don't know. We just don't know some of the answers that the last three months have brought up for us with regards to technology. Everything's changing fast. So the one luxury I have is I get to sit with kids and families and parents and teenagers that aren't just the three in my home and kind of see, get a bird's eye view about how this is impacting them and how they've adjusted. Um, so I'll share a little bit about my observations through that process as well. And I want to start with just what I would have been saying before coronavirus, because it is going to be changed by that. In terms of an agenda, I would say these four points are kind of what will anchor us today. First, I'll talk a little bit about the cultural changes that we've seen up until this point in parenting and how the culture around us is really what I want to talk about with technology. I don't really just want to talk about the device and how many hours your kids are or are not spending on a device. I think that is a really short-sighted aspect of this discussion. 
And what I want us to think about is how technology has changed the fiber of our culture and how really ultimately that is making our parenting job so much more challenging in ways and better in ways. So changes in our parenting culture and the tech culture around us, how that tech culture is influencing the well-being in our youth. I'll call them iGen youth. Sometimes people call them Gen Z. So we have that, the Gen Xers. I was a Gen Xer. And then we had you know, Gen Y and Millennials. And so this new generation of kids that were coming of age around 2012. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot about what we've, we learned as that was happening, as they were coming into adolescence. So most of those are babies born just after the turn of the millennium here. Then I'm going to reflect a little bit on how things have been impacted by COVID and giving us some thoughts about where we go from there. So cultural changes in parenting and our tech culture, the impact of tech culture on our youth, how this has been impacted by coronavirus, and some thoughts about maybe where we go. All right, so thanks for coming on this journey with me. Thank you for being willing to listen. And I wish I could sit with each one of you and have a cup of coffee and we could talk for hours about some of this good stuff. So I want us all to conjure. We've got an age range of people here. So for those of us who are, um, uh, dare I say, I was born in the early 70s. So there, that puts me in context there. But in my day, when we went on a road trip... I actually would sit in the back of my mom's station wagon. We'd lay the seats down. You know, for those of you who remember our station wagons, they had those rear-facing back seats. We'd lay those down, put some blankets down, and who ever even had a thought about seatbelts, right? We'd just cruise down the road being as bored as could be. And so how did we get through those road trips? How did we make it through? If you guys are any of my age, some of you that are younger listening, you might have your own ideas that don't include technology about how you get through. But I am guessing that anyone born before 1980 is absolutely thinking about things like the alphabet game and the license plate game. And I think there is even universal representation for the um, the quiet game. I don't know if you guys played that, but it was like, okay, who can be the quietest longest? And then you'd be like, ready, one, two, three, go. And you'd try to be quiet, and then someone would say, wait, time out, time out, time out. What if you sneeze? Time out, time out. What if you laugh? What? And it would take 10,000 years just to establish the rules. But So we had these experiences that were pretty grueling. I doubt that if we could actually get video camera footage about these road trips that they looked very pleasant. I am sure that moms across the nation wanted to, uh, they'd pull off on the rest stop and like heave deep gulps of air, having a panic attack about how they cannot survive one more minute with the kids in the back that are fighting. But nonetheless, the moms and the dads trying to get through this horrible experience did not have any other options. They just had to invent these games. Eventually, when the games ran out, they just had to let us fight it out. They just had to somehow survive. Today, we have so many options. 
So what's your most recent trip, road trip that you took? And picture what it was like. I am imagining that probably each person had their own personal entertainment pod bubble available to them. Right? They all have their own technology. They have, they have their own headphones, maybe. They can do their TikToks. They can watch videos. Maybe you can agree on a movie to watch in the car if you happen to have those DVD players and stuff. I remember um, when my son, my oldest son was born, we were in grad school and didn't have two dimes to rub together. And for Christmas, we splurged on a DVD player because we did a lot of road trips and plane trips to see grandmas and grandpas. And I seriously was like, ah, it's the dawn of a new era. My child would sit transfixed watching Blue's Clues and uh, Wonder Pets and all these little Nickelodeon PBS kids um, cartoons and I could get a conversation in with my husband. And I thought technology was like, oh my gosh, it was gonna like dawn a new era. And my son Fitz, he was born in 2003, fits in the start of this era of iGen kids. And so when we first started out, I was in graduate school in child psychology and I thought this was fantastic. Baby Einstein was gonna help our kids be smarter and all of these things. So road trips from the good old days were gone bygones. And now we've moved into this individual, personalized entertainment system where they don't even have to agree on what music to listen to or whether or not to be quiet. They can just have their own personalized experience. Now, not everyone has that, but it certainly is possible out there in the universe. And what that has meant is a whole lot of new choices for us as parents about how do we actually get our kids through experiences. So in the past, I'm sure my mom would have loved to hand me an iPad, but she didn't have the option. So somehow she and I had to just grit it out and get through the horrible, terrible experience. Whereas today, I have about 50 choices as a mother about what I will or won't let my kids do on a road trip, what I expect of them, what they expect of each other. And there's constant, constant pressure on me to make decisions, to uh, say no, to resist the meltdown, to know that I could say yes to the meltdown, but that I should say no because the experts say. And so there's this internal battle that happens all the time in our parenting. Um, because we have choices that we didn't used to have. And so we're trying to discern what's best for our kids. So in addition to that, I want to step back for just a second. I'm going to have you do a little thought experiment. If you look at some of the companies that have been really up and coming in our culture, um, Venmo, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, Uber, Facebook, what do all of these... Stitch Fix, I don't know if any of y'all like to get your Stitch Fix on, but what do all of these companies have in common? Besides their more recent in our tech era, I think when we, when we think about it, one of the things that has made most of these companies so famous and popular and used is they're just very convenient. Convenience 
efficiency, speed, um, access, these things have become the entire shift of our culture. I mean, I, I, when I go to Starbucks, I admit I really like me the app that just like orders my stuff online. I liked it even more during coronavirus because when everything was shut down, I could still get a latte if I wanted to. And I don't even have to wait in line. I don't even have to endure the trauma of line anymore. Um, and that has really saved us during this time. But it also, even before coronavirus, meant that it was like so easy to get things. If my kids need something for a birthday party, we don't even have to put up with going to the store anymore. We could just like, if we plan ahead of time, which is not always true, but we could just order it on Amazon, two-day delivery, there it is. Like the, the difficulty of, of life um, has been solved in so many ways by technology so that uh, there are countless little micro frustrations that we used to face as kids um, that we don't have to face anymore. So a couple other examples for us to recognize some of these shifts. Um, I was the youngest of three in my family. I had two older sisters, four years and six years older than me. And we lived on top of this super, super steep hill. And when I was in like first grade, so my sisters were in like seventh grade, we would ride with another family on the, the public bus transportation system down to the community college. So we'd ride TriMet for the, our local people here, down to Portland Community College where all the college students were, transfer buses, ride those over to a different place, walk along a busy road with cars flying by to go to our school. We went to a, to a private school. We also would ride our bikes from way up top of our steep, steep hill through busy traffic and downtown in our little area to go to the community pool. And it was like miles away, miles. And I'm thinking, I would never now let my three girls ride a bike without a cell phone through busy traffic to go to the community pool. And as much as you might wanna give my mom a call about the trauma I endured, there was something that, that was beneficial of that, that let us be together, to face trials together, work hard, pedal our bikes, deal with fighting, stick together, figure out a, you know, pop tire or rock that flew up. And there's a lot of problem solving and freedom that happened in kind of some of the other eras of child rearing. And generally speaking, as convenience and information has increased, the choices that we have as parents has also increased, which has shifted the function of family. So we've increased the freedom inside our homes for kids to be able to say stuff. Um, there are some things that our parents and our grandparents are like, I would never have said that to my parents, right? And, and we're like, I can't believe my kids said that, but it seems okay to have some conversations or talk ways. And then other times it's for sure not okay, right? But there's just been increasing freedom to express, to let kids find their voice and, and participate in adult conversations and experiences and to prioritize children's needs in a way that in eras past there wasn't. But that's also corresponded with decreasing freedom outside the home 
and you're wondering right now, isn't she talking about technology? Yes, I'm getting there, I promise. Um, so increasing freedom inside the home, decreasing freedom outside the home. In addition, there's constant information about and confusion about what's right as a parent. Are you supposed to let them cry it out? Are you supposed to comfort them and let them sleep in your bed as long as they want? Are you supposed to put them to bed early? Are you supposed to let them self-govern? Are you, sp you know, there's just so many different ways to do things. So overall, most of our children are facing less hardship, less of these micro frustrations. When I used to call a friend, um, again, I'm old. I'm old, ladies. I'm old, so you will uh, recognize this. But when I called a friend, we did not even have three-way calling. I was on the phone that was attached to the wall in my mama's kitchen, and I was trying to hide my conversation around the corner if the cord was long enough. And then if I tried to call them and they weren't there, I got a busy signal, and I would have to wait. We didn't even have answering machines, so I couldn't leave a message. So I'd have to wait and remember and get back to it and figure out what to do in the meantime and all of these things that I had to train my body and my emotions and my cognitive skills to be able to do just to pull off a simple phone call, right? And so even that is so easy now, so immediate. We send out a text and in seconds we've contacted dozens, hundreds of people, and we can get immediate feedback. We can unload our thoughts in a second. So all of these convenient, instant changes have hit our culture at a time when our kids are experiencing, you know, in many ways, an easier time having less hardship than some of the generations gone by with World War II and the Depression and when we talk to our grandparents about their experience. Now, now that's kind of shifted, right? Coronavirus is actually of the magnitude in terms of our generational experiences, like some of those historical events. So it is changing things, but up until then, that is, that is kind of who we were. So what that means for us as parents, generally, is that anxiety has become the hallmark of contemporary parenting. Anxiety has become the hallmark of contemporary parenting. And we want to keep our kids safe and healthy and happy and feeling good about their place in the world, but they have not had practice from early years up until middle school years with as much little teeny tiny micro frustrations as perhaps children of eras gone by have had. I'm hoping that makes some sense. Um, so these cultural changes, all of this is part of the technological revolution, I believe. Much like the Industrial Revolution changed the nature of families and communities from farming and set up around harvest, when the Industrial Revolution hit, it changed cities and communities and how kids functioned and whether or not kids worked in the factory or went to school or on the farm. The technological revolution has changed our job too. And so if we just come at tech from the lens that our kids shouldn't be on their phones too much, we will be having a much more simplistic conversation than we need to have. So. 
I'm going to talk about some examples, some pivotal research that's helping us understand the impact of this, and then we'll go into personalizing this to the last three months in our coronavirus experience. So a brilliant researcher by the name of Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E, she um, started this project called Monitoring the Future Project, and it was a study that tracked 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. Every year, she'd have a new cohort of kids going through those grades since 1991. So she started with the onset of, of what we considered the Gen Xers, me. So when I was in, heading into, um, into adolescence, um, that's, she would have caught me and my cohorts, and then moving on into millennials and now into our current era. And the study was to ask about overall happiness, self-esteem, satisfaction with life, satisfaction with specific areas like friends, parents, politics, activities, things. She also asked about economic factors, so socioeconomic status, um, and at normative activities, like how they spend their time, sports, homework, tech use, things like that. And so she has found some fascinating uh, results that mirror what us as psychologists were beginning to experience. So in the, in the beginning of this era, when my son, who was born in the early millennium, 2003, he, we thought tech was great. We thought iPads were gonna teach our kids all sorts of educational content. And then we started thinking, wait a minute, something's going on here wait a minute, it kind of feels like these kids are getting addicted. Can kids get addicted to content? So we started asking questions, and indeed she captured what we were seeing clinically in the real world and in our homes. And that is, if you can imagine the, a wavy line that was basically flat with ups and downs. So 1991 it started, and as you monitor 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, in general 12th graders felt overall better in their well-being, more satisfied with areas of their life. That would be expected. Those poor 8th graders are just like falling through the cracks. They're on the bottom of this wavy line. But they kind of tracked up and down and up and down and up and down, about at a flat line level in terms of satisfaction and overall self-esteem and well-being. So a flat wavy line from 1991 until 2012, so about 20 years. All of a sudden around 2012, things started dropping like a rock. Kids were really struggling with their satisfaction, their well-being. They still followed all the normal developmental patterns of 12th graders being slightly more mature and sure of themselves than 8th graders, but overall the entire group of adolescents were less satisfied. They were, they were struggling. They saw declines in self-esteem, life satisfaction, satisfaction with friends, and overall happiness. And these effects did not seem to be associated at all with financial well-being. So kids who had means or came from more privileged backgrounds were struggling as much as kids who didn't. Um, and so after 20 years of steady psychological well-being, something began to happen around 2012. So 
the study looked at and other data was explored, what does this correlate with? And um, in both this study and other studies, we can tell that around 2012, if we look at what's called market penetration, so it's about the, the in, um, frequency of usage of iPhones or smartphones, probably not just iPhones, but smartphones. In 2012, almost 40% of youth had a device that they could use. By 2016, 90% of uh, kids had devices. And I would say by now, kids have multiple devices, Kindles and iPhones and switches, Nintendo switches, right? So this is really where we reach what's called a tipping point in terms of the, the technology had become so common that it was now a normative part of the culture for kids. Prior to that, kids, th there were many, many kids who did not have the same level of access. And you can see that from the story of my son in, in 2003, was being first given by his eager parents a dose of tech because we thought it was great. So that really correlated with the onset of this, this crash in terms of overall well-being. In addition, you know, Dr. Twenge looked at these activities and ways that kids spent their time, and we can see that all in-person activities, so activities that you generally do and you have to be in your body to do them, although that's somewhat different with coronavirus, but things like sports, exercise, in-person social activity, going to religious services, reading something in print, like a book, an actual book you hold, doing your homework on pieces of paper and whatnot. All of those in-person activities were positively correlated with well-being. So the more you did those, the more your, your well-being scores, your life satisfaction scores went up. The more you did virtual activities, so things like online news, TV, video chat, texting, social media, computer games, internet surfing, the more you did those digital virtual activities, the lower well-being scores were associated. Now, there's a risk here. We can say that the phone or the device causes poor self-esteem and life satisfaction. And correlation does not always show us that. What we can say is kids who don't feel satisfied with their life are generally probably doing more virtual activities than in-person, embodied activities. So there is likely a buffering effect that in-person activities buffer against that life discouragement but also kids who feel discouraged in life probably select more online activities to fill their time because they're not maybe feeling as connected to their in the real world activities. So we really can see across this and scads of other research that the more in-person activities is a way we can get our kids, is a way we can maybe help undo some of the effects of technology. And that's true for us too, right? As parents, as women, um, as, as friends, the more we can connect to our in-person activities, the more we are likely feeling the effect on our moods which is why this has been so, so challenging with coronavirus because all of those in real world embodied activities have changed over the last three months.
So how um, has this affected, how has this happened with our youth and how has it affected it? So I think, you know, immediacy of choices and a, a sense of constantly needing to be entertained, constantly wanting to end boredom, frustration, fill our time, wanting something now, all of these things make handling negative emotions more difficult. Experiences like boredom, failure, loneliness, embarrassment, um, we, we struggle to have handled enough of those, to have had enough practice with those experiences. And then we hit adolescence, where you, I don't care how successful you are, you can't avoid those experiences, right? They're just the awkward, horrible years. So boredom, failure, loneliness, embarrassment, all of those things are just so um, inevitable in adolescence and you can't please everyone and you're going to have kids who don't want you to you know be close to parents and follow parental rules and you have parents who don't want you to do what peers do and there's just this clash right so if we haven't had a experience holding those things together then we feel really overwhelmed by what we have to do we don't have the muscles built up for it Overprotection has limited kids' experience with their problem-solving and feeling competent in their world. And cultural shifts make it harder on us parents to tolerate our kids' distress because we just, we have so many ways to escape it. Um, so all in all, this has kind of reduced our kids' emotional grit at a time when their social world becomes most complex. And they have this incredible exposure to too much information all at once, as do we as parents. So I don't know if any of you remember that movie Wally, -E, where the world like like comes to an end and it can't grow life, so everyone goes up and lives for hundreds of years on a spaceship and and has no gravity, so their little bodies get the, to be these like blobby weak things they ride around in chairs and drink big gulps and stuff anyone remember that movie scene well if you don't you think i'm bizarre but you get the point that basically the movie was showing if we had human bodies that didn't live in gravity for hundreds of years they would develop to be weak squish balls that barely knew how to stand on their own two legs and I think that that's sort of what's happened developmentally, is that our kids have not had gravity on them in terms of the immediacy, and so some of their muscles are weak. All right, so before coronavirus, whew, let's take a break from maybe that information for a second and let that digest. Um, I'm going to just mention some some of the standards that were out there from like the Academy of Pediatrics and psychology about how tech should be used. And then we're going to talk about the realities with coronavirus because it all had to go out the window. So under age two, you were supposed to apparently use nothing. Kids were not supposed to be exposed to even ideally in a perfect world, even TV but certainly um, smartphones, iPads, things like that, limited as much as possible, focus on high quality content. For elementary school students, under an hour a day with some days of none. 
We would recommend things like no screens in routine car trips, no screens at mealtime, no screens in bedrooms, without, with the exception of maybe um, MP3 players, music, or um, readers like Kindles or something. Uh, we recommended no devices until middle school, no personal devices of their own until middle school or later if you could. There's a movement called wait, wait until 8th, about not giving kids devices until 8th grade. We recommended parental controls on content and time limits through high school. We, mod we recommended be a good screen time model, have screen free times as parents and focus on high quality content and know what your kids are doing online and um, talked a lot about digital citizenry and about safety, not being predators, not giving out personal information, etc. So all of those recommendations were out there and many of them are good and true and hold water, but whew, during coronavirus, we had to adapt. Uh, coronavirus, just a word on in general. Coronavirus has been particularly stress, stressful because it inherently puts the developmental stages of our kids at odds with what was needed for, from a public health standpoint. So we are not, most of us, supposed to be our kids' teachers. We are not supposed to have this much time with our kids, especially our adolescent kids. They are supposed to be getting input from the rest of the world um, and to, they receive input differently. Have you ever noticed like your pediatrician or the teacher or that one coach says something to your kid about do it this way or I recommend this and they're like, mom, dad, isn't this the best idea? I'm gonna do this. And you're like, really, really? I've been telling you that for years and you fight me tooth and nail, right? That's developmentally appropriate. So our kids are not supposed to want this much uh, time and authority with us. They're supposed to want autonomy. They're supposed to mess up away from us, try things out and make stupid choices where we gotta bail them out. But when they're right under our nose for three months straight, it's been a, just a clash of developmental stages, not to mention their social needs with friends. Even homeschool families would not have chosen to homeschool the way that we all had to. So I, I really emphasize none of us homeschooled, we crisis schooled. And so we had to use technology to do it, but we didn't have uh, the setup, we didn't have the community, we didn't have the things in place. So it was a clash of stages. Um, so that inherently made it just a train wreck for most of us. Just a train wreck. Um, for most, for some kids, I actually saw some kids on my caseload begin to thrive for the first time. I saw a meme that said like, this was all constructed by the introverts to get rid of the extroverts, right? That there are some kids who just needed fewer transitions, fewer to-dos, fewer scheduled, practices and starts and stops and by being able to just be home they thrived so there is definitely kids who did well with that then there's kids who coped they did fine and then there's kids who really really struggled um, a lot of those were kids who had struggles before maybe depression or trauma 
maybe they were struggling with substance or other problems like an eating disorder or family conflict. Families who were struggling to make their connections obviously continued to struggle and it was so much harder. But um, the other group that did show some signs of struggle that maybe I wouldn't have expected so much initially are kids who had a combination of anxiety and what I call executive function difficulties. So kids who maybe had ADHD, um, autism, kids who are like poor planners, they don't do well with time management, they need a lot of external guidance and structure, and maybe even kids who are more, more um, uh, introverted in general, they actually still struggled because what we found, what I've been hearing from the kids I work with is that the structure of life met an important need for them, that they were unsure how to structure and meet just through technology. So tech really built a bridge for so many of our kids, right? But kids who struggled to plan and be creative and improvise still didn't quite know how to do that through just having access to tech. So they struggled in online school, they struggled in connecting with peers, and they're trying to figure out how to build a life that is satisfying, and they miss that contact, but they don't know how to create it, and so they're kind of just blah. They're not quite depressed and sad, and but they're really, really unmotivated, apathetic, and blah. And so some of that we're trying to make up the gap with technology by helping them connect to other people. Um, telehealth, we switched therapy appointments entirely to telehealth, and I could tell you it worked. It worked-ish, right? Ish. There's an element where we're all still struggling and missing it, but there's so much that tech did for us to bridge the gap. Um, as far as school goes, 30% of teens barely did anything. So if you're in that fit with your kids, that's not surprising. Um, and parents of kids with behavioral and learning challenges just struggled and had to simplify, simplify the expectations from school. And many just had to walk away. So if you're in that batch, know that that's not unusual and abnormal. Families um, were trying to figure out how to cope, and even families who were healthy and had happy relationships really struggled at times and loved it at other times. It's just, generally speaking, the mood swings and the highs and lows, and I got it, no I don't got it, <laughs> that was real for all of us. Uh, my house was certainly no exception to that. So what does that mean for tech? Well, all of us, even psychologists, we said, hey guys, let it go. Just let them be on their devices. Let them chat with friends, let them FaceTime, let them play games, let them play Fortnite with their headsets on and talk to each other online. Just let them connect, and thank goodness we're not in the 80s. So if you took all the rules and threw them out the window and you're feeling badly about how much your kids were on tech and you're not sure how to unwind that, don't feel bad. Know that it's okay. Good job. I'm proud of you. You used your best intuition and the best you had in the moment. Give yourself grace. Pat yourself on the back. You arrived at summer. No shame. And let's talk about some of the ways that we move forward. 
I, as a psychologist, had to eat some of my words. I had to consider the advantages and good sides of tech in a much more complicated way than I did before all of this coronavirus stuff. So um, we will have emerging research, but some of it is just anecdotal stories from our observations. So for many kids, it was initially the lifeline. It was the source of joy, connection, distraction, humor. Eventually, I will say I've seen a lot of kids start to talk about they just it just isn't doing it for them. They don't want to FaceTime as much. They don't want to Zoom anymore. They're just struggling. The blah started to set in. So it leaves me with really thinking about what we do. Um, I think that the first thing I want to just observe, I'm going to give you like um, a bunch of different ingredients that will make kind of a coronavirus technology soup, okay? It's just going to be some observations. The one, first thing to realize is that digital technology is exhausting cognitively. So for those of us who have been doing lots of Zoom meetings or I've been doing all my therapy sessions day in, day out, Zoom fatigue is real. Man, my eyes hurt, my headaches, my body. It just sometimes I felt even nauseous from too much of it. And I think sometimes our kids are feeling that. Sometimes they don't know that's what they're feeling. Some kids maybe will feel it more than others based on their sensory. Um, it comes from a lot of different things, from how we process visual information. When you're on a screen, you have to focus on the, the salient information, and you don't have what's called negative space, or as your eyeballs flit around the room, they take in a lot of information that doesn't mean anything, and you can just dump it. But when you're looking just at a screen, it's nonstop. It's meaningful information that can't be dumped and has to be processed. So it strains sustained attention and focus. You have to work harder to make meaning of social cues because you're relying more on visual and auditory and less on gesture and tone and nuances and energy in a room. So you have to work harder to make meaning. And then for our kids who've been raised so digitally, if any kids have been on social media or have done tech in classrooms, um, I had one kid recently last week, she said, I just can't do therapy the same way with you as I used to be able to do it. And I was really surprised because we'd had amazing sessions online. I said, what do you mean you can't do it like you used to? You're doing great. And she said, you don't understand. I was taught, I've been raised in this culture where I curate my digital image, that what I put out there, I'm very conscious of what it looks like on the outside looking in at me. And when I'm in your office doing therapy or when I'm in school, I have my internal experience, what it's like to be me and how different that is from my external appearance in what people see as me. And when I'm doing this online stuff, I can't get the see as me out of my head in order to be me because I'm so distracted by what, how I'm coming across. And I thought that was such a profound thing that for me as a, as a digital immigrant, I came to this technology and her as a digital native, she was raised in this technology. It makes sense. So we have to recognize why school didn't work and why some of the 
Um, mood changes happen around using technology this way. Um, but we also have to realize another really important piece besides digital fatigue um, is managing our intake and our exposure. There is something very real called vicarious trauma. So it means as you hear of traumas and risk out there in the world through digital means, news, video feeds, even TikTok. TikTok, you know, kind of started out as this funny, like, lip-syncing musically app and it's morphed into a platform where people mostly kids but people in general are putting out their views on all sorts of stuff and it's really has some lovely features but kids are being exposed to tons of not even pornographic content that's not what i mean but just like coronavirus risks deaths in new york racial tension protests blm all this information and it can be really traumatizing to us and to our kids. Um, so we have to think about how much we watch around our kids, how much they have access to. Um, they want to be in the know, but how much can they handle? And, and I really encourage you to think deeply about how you use technology given the risks of our world right now. Because I don't actually want you to shelter them too much. I think some families I've been in contact with barely even want to say the name coronavirus and definitely don't want to talk about, you know, murder of black men and racial protests. And I think we need to help them realize some aspects of the world at large, but we have to pace it for their needs. We have to dialogue and sit with them. We have to let them show us their stuff that they're digesting and experience what they're seeing and how they feel about it. But we'll get to more of that in a minute. But um, for the people who are in this, this workshop right now that are people of color, indigenous, biracial folks, um, this vicarious trauma is especially true for you. Um, there has been so much trauma to be exposed to and so much replaying and messaging and it just has been very real and I see and hear the heaviness of that burden um, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute I'm actually gonna gonna say a couple words about the racial um, realities going on but we have to figure out how to handle the struggle. We don't want our kids to not have to struggle or have discomfort. We need them to have some of these micro frustrations, but we have to pace it. We want them to know they can handle the struggle. That's about being able to process it, face it, to allow stumbling and failing, to give them and us grace when we mess up and handle it wrong, protect them where we can, but only control the pieces that we need to, because it's really easy to over-control and to drive everyone crazy, us and them. Um, before I talk about some other things, I also want to acknowledge that we can use tech for good, that I've gotten more information, skills, knowledge, growth, support online than I ever could have before. I couldn't imagine doing this in a less digitally connected era. 
Um, so tech has filled the gap in incredible ways. So a word about tech and race and this vicarious trauma. Um, as I stated, I'm, I'm so sorry for the people of color and what they've experienced. I know that in many ways uh, it is nothing new than what you've been experiencing for years. Um, I am sorry that we have not done our work before this to be ready for this kind of trauma and to walk with you better. You've borne more of your share of uh, grief and, and burden in this last three months than those of us who come from a white or privileged background. I see the fatigue and hurt you've endured, and I'm working on learning how I can be better in my family, my clinical work, and as a leader of an agency and a system. I know that you already know how to use tech to find support. But I pray for those of you that these sources you have, that they can get grow louder and just wash over you with comfort and healing and change in the world around you. I just pray for that daily and I'm I'm striving for that in my own life. Um, I identify as a white woman, so for the white women listening, I want to just say publicly, I've been so convicted <coughs> about the voices I have in my tech feeds, how I've curated my digital input, and I am encouraging all of us to be more intentional, to use tech platforms for good, don't be divisive and post confusion or more resentment. Use tech platforms to grow your knowledge. Find voices that are different than your circle and listen and learn. <clears throat> because of technology, we have the opportunity to do our own work for those of us who come from privilege, um, from particularly from the white culture, but I know there are other people of color who feel they have um, aspects of privilege that they're walking through as well. Um, but we can do our own work to confront our own racism and bias that we may not even realize we had. We have resources that are available to us that are so challenging and rich, and we can do the work. We can do our learning and don't have to lean on others to teach us the way that maybe we would have if we didn't have this technology. But we can't just take the pass card on this because we just don't know where to start or we're too insulated to care. Technology gives us a reason to not have an excuse to do the work. We can do this. So I know that this is a talk on tech in general, but I just felt burdened that we have to use this as an opportunity to do the reconciling work in this world that we need to do in our hearts and our families and with our friends of color and people we don't even know that we owe to change our systems. So how, um, that feels really hard for me to pause and shift into a general discussion that isn't specific on race because my heart is just so full with the realities of all of that right now. Um, 
and I don't want to minimize it, but I'm going to just take a minute to gather my breath and thoughts and then shift back to a more general focus on, on what to do next. Um, so there are some general things that have helped with coronavirus and coping. Some things that I hear uh, voices of color talking about helping with their own self-care during this time of trauma and things that in general we know have helped buffer the effect of too much digital uh, use in the past. So I'm going to gather <coughs> some of those recommendations. Specific to coronavirus, there's been some recent research on the idea of flow, F-L-O-W. Flow is this idea of, um, it's what you get when you're in the middle of a project, like you are gardening or weeding or you're painting a picture or you're composing a song or cleaning out a closet or going on a walk and having a deep conversation with a girlfriend. Flow is when you're immersed in an activity that takes time and has a sense of purpose and goal to it, um, and, you, and you work at it for a sustained amount of time. And flow has actually been shown to be one of the best predictors of adjusting to quarantine. Interestingly, flow, I think, is also something that doesn't happen often on technology because we're going from feed to feed to feed or we're going from video game level to earning points to leveling up to health points to getting a new life to gaining that goal and clearing the screen um, to reading Facebook posts and digesting BuzzFeed Huff posts articles, right? That tech inherently generally facilitates a superficial connection with things and that superficial connection can kind of be the opposite of flow. And so people who have found ways to find flow have done a little bit better coping. Their, their anxiety and mood measures seem to be buffered by that, even more than like relaxation and mindfulness and other self-care things we think about, like taking a bath or getting a mani-pedi or eating bonbons or I don't know, these things that people talk about with self-care that frankly make me want to kind of throw up because I do not find that just like taking a bath does it for me, honestly. Um, if, you have, if there are bath people out there, I did not mean to offend you. I wish I knew how it works sometimes, but anyways. Um, so considering for you, for your kids, elementary school kids, high school kids, what can they do that is their flow? How do we build in that sense of purpose or goal-directed activities, redoing their rooms, um, building playlists, educating us on music trends and artists, um, finding hobbies, doing things with friends that are goofy and weird, um, things like that. I also think that we know there's that these embodied experiences, these things that we had to do in real life, um, things like gardening or choreographing a dance or having a water fight or reading out loud 
or even just going on a car ride with a, a person, your kid. Um, these things you have to experience and do in your body. And so the more of those things that you can do for real in your body versus virtually, um, and the more you can do those with someone socially, so with a sibling, with a parent, with someone you're co-quarantining with, a neighbor, any of those things that we can do in our bodies, those things are very buffering against technology and against quarantine fatigue. And then also this idea of ritual and rhythm. Rituals are things that we do over and over that maybe they would have been meaningless, but we've done them enough and we've attached meaning to them so they become our thing. We do them at the same time or in the same way and we attach some meaning. So finding things like our family show that we only watch together or thing like when we go get our online grocery pickup, if we grab a kid and we always get froyo whenever it's grocery pickup day, and then we eat froyo in the car and talk. Or we have a Tuesday book chat where we say, what have you been reading about and what do you like? Or we meet up with a friend and find our special bench where we sit and talk or have our kids sit and talk. Um, these things that we do in anchored ways that are repeated or in a rhythm and time spot in our lives, they make meaning for us that helps us feel the passage of time and feel purpose. And so sometimes we, technology, we just bounce around so much so that we don't have these anchored rhythms. And usually those anchored rhythms are off tech. In theory, you could do them on tech too. You could have a FaceTime call and sit on your bench with your person on the phone and go have a chat. And that, ri that ritual matters. Um, but I think it's about attaching this meaning to it that happens in, in a rhythm like that. Overall, finding relationship connection. This means, honestly, I am not making a public health announcement, but during this time where we have open air and we have sun and wind to blow things away, flex the rules. Find, come up for air now. I'm, I'm concerned about the, the shutdown that will happen in the flu season in the fall and that we need to come up for a big, big dose of, of relationship right now. So flex the rules. Go out and have experiences in the real world. Meet up with people um, and give your kids connection that isn't tech. And so... That's going to be really hard for some of your kids. I know that some of your kids will resist it and will not want to. Um, I know that you're going to have to rebuild rhythms. So talk amongst your friends how to do that. Reach out for support from a professional to brainstorm how to break the cycle that we've all gotten in. Remember, there is no shame. There is no shame for what you had to do. If you have a 24-7 tech-addicted kid now, it is okay. Let's figure out the road back to some more in-real-world experience. But um, use this time to find the relationship connection and come up for air. Build a co-quarantine circle now um, where you can talk now about what happens if we shut down in the fall 
and how you can use technology together to bridge the gap for your families so that you can see each other, but you can also reach out to each other via tech. Um, also, build your homeschool circle now. Because I think if we could have gotten one or two kids together at a time in alternating houses and then integrated technology into that so they were Zooming together or they were doing the video together or worksheets together, that that would have been a crucial antidote to the horror of trying to do crisis schooling. Um, so consider now who might be able to be in your homeschool circle and for some of you you don't know families well enough to do that or your kid is a little bit trickier than other kids to be able to do that or your teens more resistant so tech offers you now an opportunity to reach out to people to text people and find them on Facebook and get the school or the church directory and begin posting on websites and listservs who might be interested in some of this. So use our ability to connect now to build some resources and relationships that you can use if we go back into any kind of shutdown. And, and I don't know how to unravel this being a tech talk from this being a coronavirus survival talk. It, it's an odd mixture of things. So for those of you who did not want the, the coronavirus manual, I apologize. Hopefully you can see the tie-ins to technology. In general, with or without coronavirus for kids who use tech, um, finding mentorship and relationship above and beyond you. This will help for coronavirus, this will help for kids who use a lot of tech in general. Help support your kids connecting with adults and people outside of their network. Cousins, relatives, neighbors, friends, parents, like parents of their friends. Paid babysitters, even if you have a teenager, it's you're not above paying a, a big brother, big sister type person to come over and hang out with your kid and spend some cool time with your kid. That lets the input not just be what your kids seek out of, on their own with regards to technology, but it helps build relationship connection and grounding for your kids in terms of tech. And those relationships, remember hanging out in the real world, doing sports, doing exercise, even doing homework, not online, is a buffer to some of the effects of tech. For many of us as parents, that means supporting our kids who cannot do this for themselves. They just don't have the skills socially. They can't plan. They're too anxious. Maybe they don't have friends that they feel close enough to initiate with. Maybe you don't know the moms yourselves. And so we're going to have to brainstorm what to do about this now while we could possibly reach out and strengthen some of those relationships in the real world over the summer. Um, and then we can figure out how to help support those through technology if anything changes in the fall. But I think um, in real world relationship building will always help with our battles around technology. They always will. It'll always be a helpful anecdote. Helping your kids learn to manage their emotions, their distress tolerance, their frustration, saying no and letting them hate you for it. You know, oddly enough, uh, when I first started giving these talks on screens and technology, I was preparing and doing research 
and my son was so bored and pestering me that I was like, yes, fine, just, just go play a video game. And I was so struck by the irony because I needed to focus on my task at hand about overuse of tech. I was telling my son to go overuse tech. And ultimately that was about how am I going to manage the distress around what I need to get done with my kids, right? With my kids' pressure and tension. So really this starts with us. We have to work on our ability to tolerate our kids' distress. It's easy to say yes because the pushback is so hard. But it's not just about being strict. It's not just about having rules. It's about backfilling the time that they might have spent on tech with something else that they would miss out on if you said yes to tech. So if they're bored and you say yes to tech, they're not bored, but they didn't find something else that they could have backfilled. So if you say no and they build a fort or make a play or do something, even if they need your help to get it started, those experiences are valuable. So focusing on tolerating the discomfort it creates for you and how to help your kids to backfill their time. Learn how to weather and cope with the reactivity of the stages, the tantrums, the mood swing, the aggression, and find balance between limits and just holding it, just taking the difficulty right now. Think real and deep about your own space with this, your own relationship to tech use, your own relationship to self-care in terms of your own distress and overwhelmedness both now and even before this. Find your community, your own relationships in the real world to have a fit and a meltdown. Get help from friends or from a professional if you need to. Know that this is hard and confusing for all of us. And um, the more we push forward, the more I think that we can find those embodied rituals that help ground us to a better sense of satisfaction and well-being. So I'm going to close us with a reading um, from a book called Every Moment Holy. It's written by Douglas McKelvey and they have different liturgical prayers on different experiences in life and the one I'm, I'm going to use is an excerpt from the liturgy for those flooded by too much information. You, oh Jesus, are not disquieted by the endless barrage of troubling news. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. You carried the full weight of suffering, of the suffering of a broken world when you hung upon the cross. And you carry it still. Oh Lord. Give us discernment in, facing the in the face of troubling news reports. Give us discernment to know when to pray, when to speak out, when to act, and when to simply shut off our screens and our devices, and when to sit quietly in your presence, casting the burdens of this world upon the strong shoulders of the one who alone is able to bear them up. Amen.
And thank you, Lord, for being there through each step. Thank you, women, for letting me be part of your lives today. I hope you are encouraged by what we spoke about. Um, I will have a resource publication as part of this that maybe you can click on, and in it will also have my email if you have questions or needs or want more information. I'm going to speak it here and also make sure it's on the list, but it is K, S as in Sam, V as in Victor, K, S, Valerius, V as in Victor, A, L, E, R, I, U, S, K, S, Valerius, at sunstromclinic.com, and that's long too, S as in Sam, U, N as in Nancy, D as in dog, S as in Sam, T as in Terry, R, O, M as in Mary, sunstromclinic.com. Thank you for letting me be with you, and I wish you all deep peace and love of the Lord.